The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When the malefactor has substantial support, that's precisely when you need disqualification. Disqualification is of much less value if the person in question has little or no chance of attaining a position of power anyway. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for November 1st, 2023. In the wake of Donald Trump's role in the attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the January 6th attack on the Capitol, Lawsuits in states around the country are seeking to disqualify Trump from the 2024 election. Challenges to his eligibility invoke Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which provides, in relevant part, that no person shall hold any office under the United States who, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. As of now, there are nearly two dozen states in which litigation is ongoing to bar Trump from the ballot, and that number is only expected to grow. Earlier this week, a Colorado district court began a week-long bench trial, and this Thursday, the Minnesota Supreme Court will hear oral arguments. And if a state does disqualify Trump, the United States Supreme Court will no doubt immediately hear the case. On Monday, October 30th, the University of Minnesota Law School held a conference with leading law and political science scholars on Section 3, Insurrection, and the 2024 election, Does the 14th Amendment bar Donald Trump from the presidency? Today's Lawfare podcast is a recording of one of the conference panels, which focused on the political implications of the Section 3 cases. The moderator was Larry Jacobs of the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, and the panelists were Julia Azari, a professor of political science at Marquette University, Ilya Soman, a law professor at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, and Eric Siegel, a professor at the Georgia State College of Law. It's the Lawfare podcast, November 1st what disqualifying Trump from the 2024 ballot would mean for American politics and democracy. We're going to start off with some hardcore politics questions. And Julie, I want to start with you. Um, Political scientists refer to something called negative partisanship. That is, um, we've seen this with the reaction of Republicans um, in terms of their support for Donald Trump uh, as he's been indicted. It's, you know, at least initially it was like bump ups and support and that is the, the kind of partisan reaction to criticism of one of their own, particularly a prominent leader, which is to support them more, even if there are some serious questions. Julia, do you think there's anything going on with Section 3 and how it's being handled that could trigger, um, you know, kind of a negative partisan reaction? Yeah, I think there's kind of two pieces to this. Thank you so much for that question. So I think on the one hand, yes, there's a sort of theory of partisanship that it's all about teams, that in some sense it's not even really driven by issue disagreements. And we definitely see those dynamics as Republicans, even Republicans who have reservations about Trump as a person or about Trumpism as a political 
ideology, um, I use that term loosely, um, that they're sort of drawn to being defensive of Trump when they perceive Democrats or the system or the institutions as sort of coming down on, um, on Trump. So I could definitely see that dynamic occurring. Um, but the other piece of this that I've been thinking about a lot is the sort of maintenance of the pro-democracy coalition, which, which draws together Democrats of all stripes, as well as a substantial number of Republicans, both more moderate Republicans, but also some Republicans whose substantive views are very conservative, but who have been sort of pulled into this kind of loose, I, I'm calling it the pro-democracy coalition. I think I'm stealing that from the bulwark, which is the kind of center-right um, voice on that issue. So I could kind of see this going, I could see this going in multiple ways, because I do think that that latter coalition needs a lot of of care and feeding. Um, whereas I think negative partisanship is sort of, if you're looking to be insulted, if you're looking to find something to be defensive about in the political environment, you're going to find it. Um, at, but I certainly think that the way that people talk about Section 3 could have sort of have either of those implications, to answer your question very, very broadly. Ilya, is it a concern for those who argue in favor of disqualification that it can have this blowback potential, it could actually fan support for Donald Trump and perhaps uh, for like-minded uh, politicians. So it's certainly an issue worth considering, uh, but I would note a couple of things building on what Julia said. First, when these issues about Trump's role in the 2020 election and election in Iowa is when I come front and center, it almost always has been in recent years bad for the Republican Party. We saw it in a bunch of races in the 2022 elections. I can go through details. I don't want to exceed the time limits, but it happened time and again in Arizona and Pennsylvania and elsewhere. Uh, second, the the kind of people who are likely to react negatively uh, to Section 3 disqualification or to Trump's criminal prosecutions are the kind of people who in a general election are highly likely to vote for Trump anyway because they already strongly support him and his agenda and believe he won the 2020 election and therefore that he was mistreated when that so-called victory was denied to him and the like. On the other hand, this sort of issue plays very badly for Trump and the Republicans with people who are more or in the middle, there's lots of survey data and election results to support that. Uh, therefore, I think the more focus there is on this sort of issue, on other things equal, the worse it is for Trump. Uh, in addition, there is a lot of evidence, both in the US and abroad, that political success in part depends on a sense of momentum. Uh, and if your candidate uh, gets disqualified by courts, or if he's convicted and sent to prison, that doesn't look good for his uh, sense of momentum. Uh, and again, his hardcore supporters will still be with him, and maybe they'll be even angrier than before. I don't deny that for a second, and, and that may be a problematic thing for society if they become even angrier than before because they might react with violence or in other ways. Uh, but in terms of the pure political dynamics, the more focus on this, the better. If you would like to see Trump lose the 2024 election, on the other hand, Republican political strategists, if it was up to them, they would rather talk about the areas where Biden is weak, like inflation, for example, or perceptions of crime or some other issues that we can talk about. They would rather not be talking about this set of issues uh, if it were up to them. So Eric, um, Ilya just gave a whole set of reasons why progressives might, maybe shouldn't be so fearful of, of the blowback and backlash that might come from Section 3. Um, what do you think? It's been a fascinating couple of weeks when progressives are hearing from federal society members how best to preserve um, 
democracy and we disagree in not the usual partisan directions. Someone this morning said that every time Trump got indicted, his poll numbers went up. Derek, I think Derek said that. Somebody said that. Okay, being indicted but not yet convicted is child's play compared to telling 70 million Americans you can't vote for the person you want to vote for. And if you take it out of the American context and think of a different country that has a strong two or three party system, what would we want to see before they disqualified a popular, the most popular person of one of the parties um, from office? And I think we would say whatever the legal issues are, the level of proof has to be very, very serious. And we need to be really, really sure. And having thought about all the legal issues raised in two 126-page papers and then Kurt Lash's 50-page paper and, and other writings by Derek and, and others, it is clear to me that there are about eight legal issues here that are not easy at all. I'm not talking about from the Supreme Court perspective. I'm talking about just in, rea in real life. They're not easy issues. If they're not real issues, we should not use them to disqualify a person I have hated since 1989, but nevertheless, the front runner of the Republican Party. Thank you. Uh, one of the main areas, or a main area, of study among political scientists and those interested in politics is the media. The media. And the media's coverage of presidential elections is enormous uh, in terms of its influence on voters, in terms of the ways in which candidates are framed, um, the ways in which issues are put in front of voters um, or, or not put in front of voters. So my question is actually about today. And the other eight states, and probably more states, that are going to be exploring Section 3 issues. Does this process of debating whether Donald Trump should be disqualified, does that become a media beat that enters into the campaign itself? Julia? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it seems like... Sure, maybe that could become a media beat, although it's worth noting that political media, particularly at the local level, is, is pretty understaffed right now. In terms of what, I'm sort of answering the question I, I wanted you to ask. So I'm not totally sure what you mean by media beat. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, the big concern there is the sort of horse race angle. Um, that there is a real tendency in the media when covering politics to, to give a little bit of a shorter attention to the actual stakes and instead to cover everything as this team versus that team, thus feeding into this team dynamic I was talking about before. Um, on the other hand, I think that I've been looking obsessively, which it sounds like a lot of us have, um, at polls about January 6th and insurrection and Trump and indictments. And on the one hand, there's a lot of stability on certain elements. And I think, as, as Ilya said, putting this election issue in front of voters through, through media framing, through campaigns, whatever, um, is pretty disadvantageous to Republicans. On the other hand, there's this weird movement in a couple of different polls that suggest that Americans maybe don't totally know what to think about what January 6th was, how to put it in context, or as the, the previous discussion was talking about, how to put it in the context of this longer arc of interference with the results of the 2020 election. So these are all things, if I were going to make a wish list for media, um, these would be the things I would want them to cover as a sort of deeper and broader context. Uh, but my fear is it will be covered as a sort of, you know, as a vic in a victory for Biden, the court ruled on Section 3. Ilya, let me, let me give you a scenario. Um, uh, a state uh, rules that Donald Trump should be disqualified. Um, it's this, this, what is going on in Minnesota this week um, is going to be reenacted elsewhere, and the advocates for disqualification are being quite strategic. They're going to enter lots of states, and some of them are going to be states they think have a shot at, at prevailing. 
Imagine that scenario in which a court comes down and disqualifies Donald Trump. What does the, the, the media and the political dynamics start to look like uh, once you have that kind of uh, decision? So obviously, both the political world and the media world is going to focus on this issue much more once at least one state rules that Trump is disqualified, and there will be even more focus when and if that issue gets to the Supreme Court. And if one or more states do disqualify Trump, I think there is a very high chance that the case will get to the Supreme Court for reasons that previous panels talked about that we can recapitulate if you want. Now, uh, as I discussed tooting my own horns famously in my book, Democracy and Political Ignorance. When partisans look at media, they tend to focus on media that agrees with their views and ignore the rest. So conservative Republicans and maybe Fox News, for instance, liberal Democrats, it's other more liberal sources. So often they will get messages that just reinforce what they already think. But for people who are more in the middle and more up for grabs, uh, this is the kind of thing that will not look good for Trump in the media. And it will generally focus his public attention on this set of issues of, you know, what he did in 2020 and his election in Iowaism, which, by the way, polls consistently show 60 to 70 percent of the general public does not agree with Trump that he, when he says that he actually won the 2020 election. Uh, so it is not my argument that he should be disqualified just so like to help Biden's cause politically for this worth. I'm not a big fan of Biden either. I think he's a lesser evil compared to Trump, but that's not exactly high praise given how bad Trump is. Uh, but uh, I do think that uh, to the extent that there is more media attention to this, and, and there would be uh, if there is a disqualification at the state level and the Supreme Court reviews it, uh, that is unlikely uh, to be good for Trump politically, uh, despite the dynamic by which a lot of his partisans, you know, would be reinforced in their pre-existing views, you know, by watching media that, you know, that agrees with those views. So there's a regular beat to a presidential campaign, and those of us who have followed them for years could tell you, and, and we're starting to see some of those around the debates, and then we're going to be into Iowa and New Hampshire, and so there will be that whole uh, kind of drumbeat around um, the, the campaign. We've also got with Donald Trump the, the various court cases that are proceeding. There's a drumbeat to that. Um, we've got a drumbeat now, I think, will be emerging around these Section 3 um, cases as they emerge, and, and especially if, if there is a, a state that, that rules to disbar them. Um, Eric, I'm curious, do you see an interaction among these, or how would you describe it? In other words, if Georgia were to, to uh, have a decision before the primaries were over, or perhaps in D.C., um, or there would be a kind of the, the, the race between Trump and some of the other candidates, you know, going back and forth. How, how, would, how do you see that playing out? That's a really hard question. Um, I've been I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, and once Trump was indicted in Atlanta, um, we law professors at Emory, Georgia State, and UGA were inundated 25 times a day with media requests. Um, I don't think we can have an honest discussion of this issue if we're not going to recognize something that is going to sound controversial, and not, it's not going to sound controversial, and people are going to say, yeah, of course. We have to really understand this. There's, there's not one media anymore. It's not like we turn into NBC, CBS, and ABC when I was a kid and get our news. Um, my mother-in-law, a Trump supporter from Texas, um, you know, she doesn't get the news that we get. And I don't get the news. She gets now. I do because I do watch Fox News. As I think it's part of my job to do it. But most of Americans just watch one or the other. 
So two very different, this is a point that's not yet been made today. The media is going to tell two different stories depending on which media you're watching. And what the last thing America needs, in my opinion, one of the last things America needs right now is another pivotal partisan inflection point where the media is going to go, is going to split up and America is going to split up. I really believe the criminal cases and the election can get rid of both Trump and Trumpism in a much more productive way, or there's a chance of that happening in a, in a much more productive way than using Section 3, because they won't hear the Section 3 arguments on both sides. They'll only hear one side. Great, thank you. Uh, Ilya, I want to uh, take us back to uh, the period after the uh, Declaration, um, during the Articles of Confederation, when you have um, this acutely actual representation going on in states, as Gordon Wood put it, um, and James Madison, a young upstart from Princeton, um, starts to have some real reservations about the revolution going awry. And his main concern is that uh, the, the laborers and everyday people are displacing the gentlemen and don't have judgment. And so we end up, as Madison ends up explaining in Federalist Papers, with a scheme of representation so that the voice of the people goes through this medium of representatives, and that's just one of a number of different ways in which uh, we see uh, Madison and the framers of the Constitution attempting to limit the influence and the and the forms of expression of uh, everyday people. Is that concern about uh, limiting the ability of voters to choose whoever they want as president? Is that relevant to this debate about Section 3? Yes, absolutely. While I don't share all of their reasons, I think there is good justification for much of the framers' reservations about unconstrained majoritarian democracy, including the ways in which that kind of uh, unconstrained democracy can pose a threat to itself uh, by elevating authoritarian demagogues who will subvert it. There are a number of provisions in the original Constitution that are intended to prevent that, some more successful than others, like the Electoral College intended to prevent that obviously did not work the way they expected it to work, even in the very first few elections, it didn't work the way they expected it to work, uh, but also such limitations as that the president must be a U.S. citizen, must be 35 years old, uh, and there has since then been a long history of uh, evidence both from the U.S. and abroad uh, that democracy can pose a threat to itself in various ways. We enacted the 22nd Amendment in large part because of concerns like that, that which prevents a president from serving more than two terms. Uh, the fear was that a president who served long enough could consolidate that power and become a dictator. Uh, it seems to me a president who uh, who tried to use force and fraud to stay in power after an election that he lost, like a tin pot third world dictator, that is actually an easier and clearer case than uh, the 22nd Amendment is and than almost any of the other disqualification provisions in the Constitution are. And there's a lot of evidence now from modern social science data, including a little bit of my own work, that voter ignorance and bias and authoritarian tendencies and the like are a real problem, and therefore it's useful to constrain that. The primary means to constrain is by limiting the power of government, but a secondary means used in many democracies, including our own, is limiting who has access to positions of great power in the first place. And then there's no greater such position and no more threatening one than the presidency. Cheer, that sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, 
Okay, so maybe once a generation there'll be a hard case over what is 35 or whether somebody was a resident of the right number of years, but we don't see those cases very often. 99.9% um, .9 of them can be resolved through, I don't know, math. Um, what, is an in, what is an insurrection? First of all, we had the debate, does insurrection mean what it meant in 1868 or does it mean what it means today? But, but this is, before we get down that track, but let's get to this issue about voters. Because Ilya's listed some very reasonable reasons why we should not be deferring to voters. We don't. We set up all sorts of limits uh, on the power of the, of the vote. And citizens, and we acknowledge that, that, yeah, there are a lot of issues citizens don't know about. They're, they can be easily manipulated in an era of partisanship. There are just a whole lot of folks who just vote the team and not the candidate. I think most people vote the team, not the candidate. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I don't... I think we have to deal with this situation, like everything involving Donald Trump, as kind of sui generis. And um, it's interesting. I, I've been on a number of these panels now and a lot of radio shows talking about this. And um, in all the rooms that I'm in, there were very few Trump supporters. There was one at Stanford. There was one who was able to say he was. It's very hard to have, I mean, people who really believe in Trump. I don't mean I'm going to vote for him because I can't stand Biden. I mean, people who really vote for him. It's actually really hard to have this conversation without a someone on a panel who is willing to say, I'm a Trump supporter. I'm a legal realist, so I'm going to live by my own rules here. You know, I mean, do I know whether my hatred of this man has affected my view of all this? I don't know. What I do know is it's not, I think we're making it more complicated than it is. If he gets roughly the same number of votes as last time, and I think that's likely, I don't think he'll get more, but if he gets roughly the same number, um, 70 million Americans that's 70 million Americans who are told, you can't vote for the person of your choice. That's going to upset, a, you know, even if it's 10% of voters who are really mad about that, that's really asking for trouble. And was, was James Madison wrong? When James Madison talks about the scheme of representation, talks about the importance of creating filters, talks about uh, creating limits on the influence and the forms of expression of everyday citizens, was he wrong? I would love to have more than the one minute and a half I have to answer that question to say that I think we, we have Donald Trump and we have our current situation in large part because of the um, counter-majoritarian checks in our system. I am the anti-Professor Soman. I think his work is really thoughtful and you all should read it and it's, and it's really good stuff. But we disagree. Um, we just disagree on this. I, I, I think we need much more majority rule than we have. And I think the American people are, are creeping towards that conclusion. Um, Julie, I want to bring you in. Um, us political scientists, we may be alone here, uh, talk about the rational public, at least mm -hmm. uh, some of us do. And, and that argument is, yes, the public may be confused on individual issues. Individuals may be confused. But when you look at the aggregate, uh, that, that the public uh, generally reasons in, in an understandable way in response to available information. Um, do you think you know, people like Eric are overcorrecting for um, their fear of the right, that there ought to be more trust in, in the kind of the rational public? Or are we at a time when the, you know, fear of, you know, as Eric is articulating, fear of, you know, frankly, the mob is something that ought to be taken into account? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I hadn't thought about it in rational public terms, although I've certainly been looking at some of this data, and it does sort of suggest uh, kind of rational public um, 
response to to this election stuff, right? Response to the sense that something is the sense that someone is trying to interfere with elections. That's that's something that across kind of in a way that somewhat crosses just who's a hardcore Democrat. Uh, people object to what Trump has done. So I think the rational public thesis sort of applies here. In terms of who, what we should be afraid of, I think. I think what happens, and this is, I think a number of us were at a conference a couple of weeks ago on Zoom at UCLA, so I've sort of had a chance to talk to other political scientists about this. I think that that one of the things that tends to happen in these rooms, in these rooms that tend to be sort of center-left to left-leaning, is that people are really afraid of, of the mob, and as a result, we think implicitly about the veto that 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 segment of the electorate holds over basically anything we could we could do, particularly any kind of limitation we might place on um, on someone like uh, presidential candidate Trump. And I think we have to think about the other side of that ledger. You know, it, we we kind of talked a little bit at dinner last night about populism. Populism, the kind of angry populism that could come from the from the pro-Trump mob, is not the only source of anti-institutionalist populism and institutional distrust in American politics. That's also happening more broadly across the political spectrum to the point that distrust in the effectiveness of government government is now the most important problem in in these Gallup surveys. So I think there's also a potential cost of looking like ultimately when someone, particularly someone in a powerful powerful position, the most powerful position in president, when that person engages in kind of fundamental misconduct against our elections, that there's no, there's no recourse. I'm not saying that's my view or that's the correct view, but I think that that view is out there. Um, and I think that there's a risk that if these section three cases sort of come forward and then people back off of them for one reason or another, I think that's a potential, that's, that's a potential uh, pitfall of that. So just a couple of small things. First, I'm not left-wing, very far from it. Uh, and I say that not just by the standards of law professors. It's very easy to be a non-left-wing law professor, <laughs> given where the average law professor, even by the standards of the general public, uh, I am to the right of the median voter probably on more issues than I'm to the left, though it depends on which issue you emphasize. Uh, and I've been writing about the problems of political ignorance and related issues for 25 years. When I started, most of my left-wing friends were like, no, this is not a problem. The rational public will take care of it, or there are information shortcuts that will take care of other things like that. Briefly on the rational public idea, which I talk about at length uh, in, in my book, uh, this is also often called the miracle of aggregation. And the idea is most individual voters, they don't know very much, but when you combine them together, they make good, well-informed decisions as a group because errors one way are offset by errors going the other way. There might be people who vote for stupid reasons for the Republicans, but there is a comparable number of people who vote for stupid reasons for the Democrats, and it all offsets, and you get sort of the, a good result. Uh, under rarefied, specified technical conditions, this is true. You can show mathematical models where this works, but it only works if you make assumptions that rarely hold true in the real world, such as that errors one way do you offset errors in the other way, so you end up with sort of the best informed people making good decisions. And also, uh, it implicitly assumes that the selection of candidates is not also influenced by bias and ignorance, uh, so that it implicitly assumes like once the final two candidates or the final set of candidates are before the electorate, then they come out with a good result, whereas in reality, uh, the selection of candidates in the first place often is influenced by the fact that the parties and activists know they're going to be facing an ignorant electorate with lots of biases. There is also more formal refutations that I have done and that Jason Brennan and other scholars have done 
of the miracle of aggregation. For those of you interested in mathematical models, check out my book or his book. But the intuitive problem with it is that it rests on the assumption that errors one way are offset by errors going the other way. And in the real world, on most major issues and most major elections, uh, that just isn't true. OK, great. Eric, I want to ask you about the kind of slippery slope argument. Let's say uh, Ilya, and maybe Julia, sometimes I've, I'm not entirely sure where she stands, but I think generally she's, she seems to think uh, disqualification is something to be seriously entertained <clears throat> under certain circumstances. Let's say that side prevails in a state, and its, you know, it's, it's conclusion uh, remains uncertain for some period of time. But do you think there's a slippery slope element to uh, success in disqualification? And explain what you, what you mean by that. Well, I do think, as Marjorie Taylor Greene from my home state, which is something I hate coming out of my mouth, um, <laughs> has shown us, I think the last 20 years at least of American history has shown us that Republicans use tools more effectively than Democrats. I don't, I, and I just think that, that's just obvious. Um, uh, the majority of Americans voted for a Democrat and Trump became president um, over and over again. I am extraordinarily afraid of using Section 3 to disqualify Trump for that reason. Um, Mitch McConnell has showed, the GOP leadership has shown, a, even in the face of Trump's anarchy, a pretty good, uh, you know, they, they've held themselves together reasonably well. And um, giving, if Trump is disqualified, or even if they're in some states and not other states and becomes a big deal, you can bet that the Republicans are going to go after Democrats under the same tool. And with Black Lives Matter, it might not be difficult. I, I, think, I think Vice President Harris made some comments. So I, I, I think this is a tool that should come out when we're at civil war or on the brink. Now, we might be on the brink of civil war. I don't know. But it's not something to be used to disqualify 70 million, to disqualify the choice of 70 million Americans who don't agree there was an insurrection on January 6th. Are you worried about the slippery slope? I worry more about the slippery slope the other way that Julia pointed out, which is that if somebody can, a president of the United States can seek to stay in power after he clearly lost an election uh, and do so by force and fraud, and then he suffers no uh, legal consequences from it, that's a precedent for future politicians. That's a freebie. I can try to do the same sort of thing. And Solomon might even be more competent at doing it than Trump was, because the, the one good thing about what Trump did, if there's a good thing, is that his scheme that he put together with his various co-conspirators and so forth was a random shackle scheme that had whittle with any chance of success. Uh, a future politician trying to do something similar might be uh, craftier about it. Uh, and uh, I do think slippery slope concerns are worth worrying about. I agree with that, actually, with Eric on that one point. I, uh, but I think there are safeguards against them. There would be judicial review of these disqualifications. Uh, and uh, even if there is some slippage, like there might be, I admit there might be some cases where disqualification could happen where I ideally would not want to do it like somebody was involved in a riot uh, over something that's not really sufficiently political or to like, well, if some rioters get disqualified, frankly, I think we can live with that. Now, rioting, even for non-political reasons, is a very bad thing. Uh, and I would say the same thing about most of the other borderline cases that are realistic possibilities for disqualification given judicial review. Uh, and uh, there is the one caveat that I'll send in my article that 
I think even some insurrections narrowly defined are actually for good causes, like John Brown's insurrection against slavery was an insurrection for a just cause, but yet uh, it would clearly fall within any plausible definition of an insurrection. But that, again, is... While it's it's a general genuine downside, I think it's one that I'm willing to live with, uh, given the alternative of not disqualifying somebody who uh, you know, uh, who used the highest office in the land uh, to try to turn himself into a tin pot dictator. Julia, how do you think about the slippery slope? Mm-hmm. And and it looks like it can slip either way, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think. You know, I think about this in terms of the, the massive amounts of ink that we have, many of us have spilled over the last seven years about norm violations. Um, and it doesn't seem like, I mean, this is sort of the story of this kind of politics. And it doesn't seem like anybody needs another party to, to violate norms first, right? There's almost um, a kind of, I wrote a piece about this, uh, I don't know, sometime in the depths of the pandemic um, about kind of the vice signaling Um, in the Trump administration and sort of use of norm violation as a political appeal. And so in that sense, it's not like they're waiting for the Democrats to move first. The exception of that is impeachment. And we're kind of seeing that, you know, a couple months, I might have a a more empirically informed answer to this because we are kind of seeing this idea that, oh, the House Republicans are going to impeach Joe Biden because like straight up strictly for revenge and maybe that will work and maybe it won't. But so far, I would not say it's, it's sort of seems like it's buoyed by huge amounts of energy and it's, it's quite controversial um, in the conference. So in that sense, I think the slippery slope is much more um, as Ilya said, in the other direction, in the direction of kind of pushing out the boundaries of what kinds of anti-democratic behavior is, is allowable or is, seen as a is within the bound the informal boundaries of norms rather than the other way. Mr. Slippery Slope. <laughs> I've never been called that before. Um <laughs> I uh I think that um section three has not been used for a very long time for very good reasons. Um and I think that the Ninth Amendment, as far as I know, has never been used by a federal court to find a constitutional right, I think. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's right. Uh, only in Griswold did Justice Goldberg kind of pay lip service to it. So we have a constitutional provision that has basically never been used. Uh, it wouldn't upset me, absent some kind of military event, for Section 3 to fall in that category as well. I think the potential for, for polarization is just too high. Ilya, I'll just be honest with you. I, I kind of look at some of these debates, and they're interesting. Um, but then I just jumped to the end story. It's a Supreme Court that's got a six-vote majority. Um, and it's, for me at least, unimaginable that there's going to be a majority that would be in favor of disqualification. Um, why am I wrong? So I don't know that you're wrong for sure in the sense that I, don't, I certainly won't predict with high confidence that they will vote to disqualify, but I think there's a good chance they will. And I say that for uh, a couple reasons. One is when you look at situations when Trump's personal interests have come before the Supreme Court as opposed to general, say, crudely speaking, conservative Republican interests, he has mostly lost. The Supreme Court dismissed virtually out of hand his lawsuits over the 2020 election. Uh, they dismissed his claims of executive privilege with respect to January 6th investigation. Uh, they got rid of, they, they ruled against his efforts to put the uh, thing in the census about, tri- about illegal immigrants, and there's many uh, other examples like this. Uh, and 
if you look at the Supreme Court, I think there's a good chance that three liberal justices uh, who uh, would vote to disqualify, and all they need is two additional votes. And I think there's a good chance that those two additional votes could be found from among those uh, conservative justices who we have reason to believe from various decisions made in the past aren't especially fond of Trump and Trumpism. If you want to be a legal realist about it, as Eric likes to be, uh, it's worth noting that the Republican justice on the Supreme Court, just about all of them are actually products of the pre-Trump legal establishment within the Republican Party that doesn't especially like Trump uh, and doesn't especially like populism. That doesn't automatically mean they will vote to disqualify. And I really do think the Eric may disagree, but I think the quality of legal arguments will make a difference here. And so it's not impossible that you will see a, them dismiss it on some technical ground, uh, like you know the Trump wasn't sufficiently connected to the insurrection, or even less likely that the president is not an officer. Do I doubt? That somewhat silly argument will attract five votes, you know. But there are other other arguments that might. So I give it at least a 50-50 chance that if this issue reaches the Supreme Court, there will be five votes in favor of disqualification. I would add also that from another crude political point of view, if the Supreme Court's legitimacy to the extent that it has problems is on those problems are more on the left than on the right right now. Uh, some of the justices uh, who care about that, which not all of them perhaps do, but some who care about that, they might welcome this in opportunity. Like once again, once and for all, we can show we're not the MAGA Supreme Court and uh, so forth. Uh, so for all those reasons, I think there is a real chance. Uh, I honestly believe it could go either way. Okay, so just entertain me here. Sure. Who are the two justices that you think are most likely <laughs> to, um, to, to entertain seriously the idea of disqualification? Uh, I'd say, and, and why? among the conservative justices, uh, I'd say it's a good question, and I'd be lying if I said that I'm completely confident in this answer, and I'm not. But if I had to pick two, I would pick Gorsuch and Roberts. Uh, Gorsuch, because he's shown both significant civil libertarian instincts of various kinds and significant skepticism about democracy of the kinds that I mentioned earlier, and Roberts, because it's very obvious that for a variety of reasons that Roberts doesn't like Trump and Trumpism and they don't like him, uh, and uh, so and also because he cares about this institutional uh, these institutional considerations. So I'm not 100% predicting that either of those two justices or any particular justice uh, will vote to disqualify. But if I had to choose who I thought were the two most likely conservative justices to do that, uh, it would be those two. Maybe Amy Coney Barrett being a sort of a close third, perhaps. Oh. Give me a dose of realism here. You've <laughs> got 50% over here saying that, that uh, disqualification is a possibility. Um, no if it reaches the Supreme Court. If it reaches the Supreme Court. No one is saying this certainty, and we're all acknowledged. We're staring into a, a, a crystal ball of some sort. So I'll, I'll just make two, modesty. I'll make, yeah, I, I'll make two quick points. To write an opinion, unless the lower courts do a great job, which could happen, but the lower courts don't do a great job. To write an opinion disqualifying Donald Trump might take 126 pages. That's what it took Will and Michael, and they're really good writers, much better than probably the law clerks on the Supreme Court. So um, it's just much, and th you know, these are real people like us. They have dinner, and they go to movies, and they go to the bathroom, and run on yachts and stuff. That's not us. But anyway, um, <laughs> they're going to have to write a really long, persuasive, convincing opinion on really hard issues. And the second, which, which is going to be difficult, especially if it's a time crunch. More importantly, 
Okay, so the Supreme Court doesn't care about text. I wrote that in the Harvard Law Review. I can give you a thousand examples. Um, but they do use text to get to their political result. And this text says you can't hold office. It doesn't say you can't run for office. Michael McConnell, when I was at Stanford last week, gave a, a three-minute kind of, which was long, uh, and, you know, statement that, that if, if you do believe in text, they don't, but they pretend they do. If you believe in text, it would be so easy to just say, wait until he wins, then come back, because this case isn't ripe. Now, we all know, and Ned has shown in as cool a way as you can show, how much of a disaster that would be. But I don't think they see it as more of a disaster than disqualifying Trump. I think they would see that as a bigger disaster. So they'll use an off-ramp and avoid all the hard work and, I think, still remain loyal to the Republican Party, which, make no mistake, is going to be a big factor in all of this. Julia, you want to weigh in? Sure. Yeah, I'll weigh in briefly. Um, I think I think what Ilya says about the potential Supreme Court justices makes good sense. Um, it also does not seem obvious to me on the other side of the ledger that all of the, the liberal Supreme Court justices would necessarily buy a disqualification. And I think the thing that I keep coming back to, especially having spoken with, with Ned Foley about this, is this really would have made a lot more sense to do in the immediate wake of, of January 6th. Um, but it also, that argument doesn't preclude that doing it later is necessarily not a, not a second best. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers 
and that the one with the most information about me was called Hleck. I have no idea what Hleck is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So we've been talking about kind of big national themes. Um, and I'd be very interested in talking about states. This is not going to go to all 50 states, but mm -hmm. as we go toward, you know, from Minnesota to Colorado to a growing number of states, where should people look? Which states strike you, Ilya, as... As, as locations, both because of the general politics and the court in those states, where you might see uh, support for disqualification? So this is an issue which I have much less expertise on than some people who are on previous panels like Ned Foley and Derek Mower and others, so you should almost bring them back to answer it. Uh, but I will just briefly say uh, that... Uh, first, I think disqualification is more likely in states where the lawsuit to disqualify at this stage can't be dismissed for procedural reasons, like in the Colorado case, where, as I understand it, sort of voters can file lawsuits in a way that maybe in the federal level you can't do it, but at the state level it's legal. Uh, but I would also say it's possible you get some disqualifications that are initiated not by 
lawsuits, but by government officials, perhaps in some blue states, secretaries of state and like. I don't know enough about the laws of particular state to know which secretaries of state or other officials have that kind of authority. But I believe, and experts in the audience, please correct me if I'm wrong about this, I believe that there are at least some states where they do have that authority. Uh, but the important thing, I think, is that once such a disqualification happens, I think it would likely uh, move to the Supreme Court. And I think once it got there, I actually, again, I could be wrong. Maybe Eric will be proven right. But I do not believe the Supreme Court would want to say, well, let's wait until after November 6th or whatever, whatever date the election is, because they know uh, that would be a disaster in terms of having it happen in that environment. And if anything, in recent years, the Supreme Court has been more eager rather than less eager than it should be to resolve things that they think should be resolved quickly uh, in a fast way under on the, on the so-called shadow docket. Steve Waddick of the U of Texas has a whole book criticizing this for this. Sometimes I think justly so, sometimes not. So I think once this gets going, if there are states that disqualify, it will happen. And moreover, there are many states which have laws, like the ones quoted earlier in the panel, which say that uh, if uh, a person is not eligible to hold the office, he or she is also not eligible to be on the ballot. Uh, and that would be a way that if the Supreme Court did make the ruling earlier, uh, that that would have an immediate impact on you know, who's on the ballot. To be sure, there might be issue, well, what if somebody wrote in Donald Trump or somebody else was disqualified and states would have to decide uh, that, but presumably if they believe that the person, if the law says there that the person can't be on the ballot, then votes for them write-in votes or whatnot could, also could not be counted any more than like if somebody wrote in my name on a write-in for president, I couldn't, it couldn't be counted because I'm ineligible under the natural born citizen thing. Uh, you know, uh, that's just a hypothetical, but you know, with Trump, there would be more of those write-ins that would have to be considered. I, I just want to say that there's this other thing out there called the Purcell principle, um, which may or may not be used, but could be very handy for the court in the sense that if, if let's talk about different states and, and Georgia of course is a purple state and 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 we you know we were very important last two elections but and and the governor and the secretary of state had no truck for Trump's election business right with, with a different secretary of state Trump could be president today um, uh, in a couple of states but they they wouldn't deal with this issue they said it's not happening in Georgia and they and, and Georgia did have a hearing on Marjorie Taylor Greene on whether she was involved. You know, so so that, that's the pushback from the non-Trump wing of the Republican Party. Um, but most importantly, here's my prediction. Bold prediction time, it's almost done, so time for bold predictions. I don't know how the Supreme Court will rule. We, none of us do, and it's just the best guess. But I do predict those who think that Trump should not be disqualified will have a CF site to the Purcell rule and saying it's just too close to a national election. We could have done this in 2022. But waiting to 2020, end of 2023 or beginning of 2024 is just too late. That's not exactly Purcell, but it's close enough for a CF site, and it will be in there. So, Julia, um, a bunch of us are friends with, with different folks. One of my good friends uh, is uh, a senior campaign advisor to uh, Nikki Haley. Mm -hmm. And she's been telling me for some time that Trump's support is soft. Mm -hmm. I keep saying, where's the polling? You show me the evidence. Right. And she just keeps saying, wait. Um, and so for the Nikki Haley's out there who are, you know, fighting it out and, um, you know, working in the, the work of a, a candidate in the second or sometimes third tier, um, can you see a scenario in which the uh, battle in the states, 
you know, disqualifies Trump, it then heads off to the Supreme Court. Um, what does that do for uh, primaries in February and March, which is going to be the key right. period where most of the, the, the delegates are going to be apportioned? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things. I, I love this question. You're really going to have to hold me to the time limits here. So um, <laughs> the first one is we haven't talked a ton about this on this panel, but the other thing that's going on there is Trump may not be able to campaign very effectively because of all the ongoing litigation. So I think that that, and that also, as we've talked about, kind of has a, a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, will it rally supporters to Trump's cause? Seems to be I want to point out strictly within the Republican electorate. Um, on the other hand, that might put him as a, at a disadvantage to candidates like Haley, who have tried to make the case that, look, you know, it's time for us to move on. We'll take what we like from Trumpism and then move in a different direction. Um, I think it would create some, some opportunity to really run with that. What's, what's interesting about that is that Republican voters don't seem as receptive to the kind of electability argument that some of Trump's primary opponents are trying to make. At the same time, I mean, I'm thinking about this first debate, uh, the first Republican debate. One of the things that clearly the candidates on the stage did not want to array themselves along in terms of a spectrum was kind of the Trump January 20th issue. And when pressed, when asked, did, did Mike Pence make the right call? Most of them said yes. Um, but at the same time, you know, they all said they would vote for, for Trump, they would support Trump as a nominee. Almost all of them said that. So it's like, it's a really ambiguous issue. There's a lot of room for someone like Haley, I think, to define it in this intense period of the early primaries. On the other hand, the, the mo most important thing, I think, in the primary is name recognition. Um, and Trump, is, no one's ever going to beat Trump. And Eric was talking about um, 1988, right? Everyone's known who Trump is forever. 89, I think it was. Sorry. Uh, 89 was a big year. Even uh, in 88, they, most people knew. Uh, was. I, I was raised in New York. We hated him long before 1988. Yeah, and New, York, New Yorkers knew him. He was on front page of the Post every day. Um, Ilya, take us to the post-2024 uh, period. Um, is there some sort of institutional residue from the debate we're having? Now, obviously, it's going to depend on how it works out. But let's say Trump is not disqualified. Um, that, you know, for the various reasons that you all have articulated, is there some sort of institutional marking, um, both for the reasons that you and Julia have made uh, or presented in terms of uh, it's important to guardrail um, uh, behavior outside Democratic norms? Um, and then, Eric, you've made points about, you know, here we've got a candidate who's got monstrous popularity. And so I'm asking, is there a politics around Section 3 that you can imagine developing after the 2024 election that maybe uh, begins to, to build some of those guardrails? So I think if he's not disqualified and also he doesn't get significant criminal liability, and obviously those are two significant ifs, then yes, uh, future politicians ambitious presidents and others will see, you know, that there's not much risk to engage in this kind of activity and they lose elections. And therefore, uh, as I said before, there's a, an increased likelihood that they will try to do things like that and perhaps try to imitate Trump's strategy, but in a more sophisticated kind of way. 
you know, could there be a, you know, a politics of trying to rebuild other kinds of guardrails? Maybe. Obviously, that would be easier to do if Trump is defeated in the election nonetheless than if he becomes president. Uh, and it is not my view, by the way, that Section 3 or disqualification should be the sole or the only guardrail. I even, you know, co-authored one of the reports in the National Constitution Center on restoring the guardrails democracy. There's a team libertarian report that I'm one of the co-authors of. There's also a progressive and a conservative report. So I think there's a lot of other things things that uh, are as much or more important to do, uh, but losing this guardrail is undesirable at the very least, uh, and this guardrail would be lost because if Trump is not disqualified under Section 3, uh, either that would mean that almost nobody of any significance could be, or at the very least, as Eric says, nobody who has substantial support. Uh, and it seemed to me that people, when, when, when the malefactor has substantial support, that's precisely when you need disqualification. Disqualification is a much less value if the person in question has little or no chance of attaining a position of power anyway. If Trump is not disqualified, does all of this and today become a footnote? Or do you see it having institutional legs? Well, that depends if Trump wins. <laughs> if Trump wins, none of this matters. Um, I, mean, I mean, our country is, you know, so. Um, I don't think so. Um, so I know Ilya has written really, really beautifully, and because and, I've, I've I just read the work, um, on this problem of democracy and guardrails and all of that. I think we're in a moment of time that is, if it's not an emergency, we're on the cusp of an emergency. My entire neighborhood is blue, and within five miles of my house, it's 90% blue, and 18 miles away, it's like 80% red. That urban-rural divide is not an easy thing to navigate. It is really, really hard. So I'm, I, I, don't, I can't say it any more repetitively than I've already said it. We do not need, the, the criminal cases are already infuriating his base. His poll numbers are going up. If he's actually sent to jail, I think he'll become a, a martyr of unconscionable um, uh, height and weight. Um, so I, 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 think we need to, I think we need to really simplify this. And then one last thing. I think... The only, my best hope for this country is that we beat Trump soundly at the polls. The, 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 and, let me, and, then, and, then, and let me just say, in, I've done five trips in seven weeks, not all on this issue. Every Uber driver I have, I ask the question, do you think Donald Trump should be disqualified? So I have six, I've, I know it's not a mathematical thing, but I have six answers. Um, one person didn't know anything about it, and the other five said no. And they felt very strongly no. And I would say, why? Are you a big supporter? No, it's not that. It's just that we can't just take someone off the ballot. That doesn't work. It, it, it had, you know, I think that's how not just Trump's base feels, but I think a lot of people feel that way. So again, if we're going to do this, we have to be sure. We, if we're going to go after King, you have to get him. This is not going to get him, and it may make it easier for him to be King. That's what I'm really worried about. And if we want to get you all involved in the question, so um, let me just... As we're getting that set up, I'm going to ask one last question to Ilya. Uh, um, I know you've looked at history in different cases um, in the U.S., uh, but also abroad. Um, what do those, those cases tell us? What does Eastern Europe or, or elsewhere, what kind of light does that shine on, on the questions we're facing now? I don't think it definitively determines what we should do, but it's worth noting two kinds of precedents from other democracies. One is lustration laws in post-communist Eastern Europe, where they disqualified various people who had prominent roles in previous communist governments, like particularly members of the secret police. Those have worked out reasonably well in A, keeping those people out of power, and B, 
uh, avoiding creating any kind of general slippery slope. There have been some slippage in democracy in a place like Hungary, but not because of these was. Secondly, in Germany and in Israel, perhaps in other cases as well, they went further and they disqualified entire political parties. German, West Germany for many years had was disqualifying both the Nazi party and the Communist Party. Israel disqualified some various uh, types of uh, far-right sort of Jew Jewish chauvinist parties and the like. And there, too, there wasn't a lot of a slippery slope, though it's also the case that they haven't been completely successful in preventing those kind of parties from coming back under other names in both Germany and Israel. So uh, on the other hand, there are cases the other way, like Russia made a terrible mistake, I think, in not enacting lustration laws, and therefore former KGB Colonel Vladimir Putin uh, came into power. Now, I'm not saying what happened is because this one man got into power and everybody would have been wonderful in Russia if, if that wasn't the case. Uh, but a more general restriction on former KGB types and the like might well have aided Russia as it aided these countries in Eastern Europe as well. I think the lesson we learn is first, there are other democracies have done similar things. Second, when they've had it, when they've done it, it's had mixed results. But in no case has there been this massive slippery slope towards either authoritarianism or towards more general sort of disqualification of political opposition. But there's no Trump. I mean, none of the situations that you talked about was there, were there 70 million people saying, we want that guy. So in, in each of these cases, there was a large number of people who sympathized with the type of political movement that got disqualified. Uh, in West Germany, after World War II, there were millions of former Nazis. Uh, in Israel, there's a significant number of people who like the, the Jewish far right and so forth. It doesn't have to be centered any one man. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex movement as well. You've got the mic. I think we can all say at this moment that has been brewing maybe even uh, for the past uh, few years that legitimacy, not only in our political systems but in our institutions, is a bedrock concern. Because of that, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Eric, that if this comes out to be a court decision where through the uh, procedures and mechanisms that a few select already by the American public looked at as maybe even a rubber stamp to the Republican Party or, or to institutions as a whole. But if it comes out that it is decided by courts versus the public, the backlash that could, the political backlash that could happen for that, uh, from that is even more of a threat to our democracy. More, I would even uh, postulate to say that it's even more than the ignorant voter or ignorant public, which, because of media, that has been around for decades now. But something like this, isn't it more important that the paramount concern of our democracy be because of the struggles with equal, writing, or equal rights and the Voting Rights Act, that regardless of if you can thread the needle from some obscure, uh, you know, legal action, that those American voters be heard, that those 70 million voters be heard, whether or not you like the policies or, or anything like that, because one of the things that you said, and if I mispronounce your name, I apologize, Ilya, okay, uh, the John Brown Rebellion. My grandmother just turned 98. So that literally means when I sat down with her when I was 16, 17 years old, she's the daughter of slaves. So when I sit there and she grew up in Mississippi and they tell me what they went through 
to even get the vote, to say that 70 million people do not get to choose who they want just because of the implementation of a very obscure constitutional amendment, that seems to undercut the legitimacy of the institution that is already looked at by the American public to be to have questions of legitimacy. Great, that's a great question. Yeah. Ilya, I yeah. think you've got a good question here. So Michael Paulson gave part of the answer to this already. Uh, there are several friends of the Constitution, most notably the 22nd Amendment, which, which all the time deprived people of candidates that otherwise they would prefer to choose. In 2016, had Barack Obama been able to run for a third term, he very likely would have won it. Uh, if Reagan had been able to run it for a third term in 1988, very likely would have won it. And there's Bill Clinton probably as well, and so on. Uh, second, uh, there's a difference between being deprived of the vote entirely, which was, of course, happened for decades for African Americans, uh, and merely being deprived of being able to vote for a particular individual who is disqualified under legal rules that are not actually, they're obscure only because it hasn't been used in a long time, but the reason is not some obscure technical thing. The reason is that, you know, the person participated in an insurrection to overthrow the government. That's not like being disqualified for jaywalking or for underpaying your taxes or using illegal marijuana or something like that. Uh, that's a reason that ordinary people can well understand as a justification for keeping somebody far away from positions of power. And then finally, in terms of uh, you know, voters and them able to do what they want, a lot depends on what it is that they want to do. If what they want to do is sufficiently evil and unjust, then they shouldn't be allowed to do it. That's why we have all sorts of constraints in the uh, Constitution, like the Bill of Rights and the like, which prevent uh, these things from happening. Uh, and I think uh, the Section 3 doesn't perfectly model these things because, as I said, you know there are actually some insurrections which are just which are for just causes. Uh, but to the extent that it keeps out people that try to set themselves up as authoritarian dictators, as Trump did, or like the examples in Eastern Europe and Germany and so forth that I gave, uh, then that is an entirely defensible constraint on the voter preferences and one that is very much in the American political tradition, which are going back all the way to the founders' uh, views on constrained majoritarian democracy with some degree of not always justified suspicion, but often justified. So Julia, uh, Ilya just gave um, mm -hmm. a very persuasive account for why uh, disqualification fits into uh, the general limits and protections for liberal democracy. On the other hand, the point has been well made, I think, that, you know, for, for the man on the street, um, for Donald Trump, who's got 70 plus million votes, who's got, you know, 50% or more of the Republican primary support, you know, to leap out with uh, what will seem to be an arcane uh, set of conversations and pull him off the ballot it, it's it's a it's a real shot to legitimacy uh, for half the country of our of our democracy, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I have two things I want to say in response to this. One is is the seventy million thing. Um, I, I really think that is not a useful way to think about this. And the the the, the number of votes that are received by the loser of a presidential election is not usually something we, we use for legitimacy. Um, and I just don't think that's relevant at all. That's a, that's a post-2020 election insurrectionist talking point, um, the 73 million voters. We don't know that Trump has 73 million voters in the 2024 elections. It has not happened yet. Um, I do take the point about him being the, the field leader in the Republican primary. And I don't think that people should be 
should be left off the ballot, you know, willy nilly for sure. I think that I think there's there's a decent chance that there is no there's no vision of American democracy right now that is legitimate that will satisfy everybody. I think that to the extent that there's fluidity or there's room for improvement here, it's in response to the question you posed to Eric earlier. It's sort of about the politics of how we how we would potentially lay out a Section Three um, objection to to Trump's candidacy, a disqualification, is bringing together people's attitudes about January sixth and their attitudes about the remedy. Um, it's not clear to me that that's an automatic success, but it is, it is clear to me that people have a bunch of different considerations when you ask them virtually anything, but especially this, that people did not like what Trump did on January 6th for the most part. Um, that is particularly independence tend toward the anti-Trump position. Um, but at the same time that that's, you know, we don't particularly, we don't want people, you know, dumping candidates that were popular off of a ballot. So can those be reconciled? I mean, only politics can tell. I, 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 again, I wish we had a strong Trump supporter here. I think this would be a different conversation. I absolutely do not think Trump supporters will agree that this is an insurrection. I absolutely do not think they even care. Um, and, and not far from where I live, I, I think I've talked to people who feel that way. So um, I think the, the, the risk, the benefit of getting rid of Donald Trump through the electoral process is so much greater than disqualifying him. And then one last thing. Last week, Trump told his supporters at a rally, don't, don't even vote for me. I have enough votes. Stay home and watch it on television. He really did. Now, of course, we know things just come out of his mouth. And, but I actually think, given the criminal trials, this is going to sound crazy, but hey, I once said the court is in a court, now people agree with me. Um, listen, I think he's planning on taking power by saying this to the House of Representatives. I, I, think, I think Trump is being aided by some people, like the general, whose name I'm forgetting now. But I think, and this, yeah, and this will help... If we disqualify him, that will make it easier for Trump to raise enough chaos to get this to the House of Representatives. Okay, next question, please. Just kind of following up, would it be a good idea for the Democrats to join with Republicans if, in fact, Trump is deemed disqualified to go ahead and remove the disability? 100%. I actually wish Congress would do that tomorrow. I I wish Congress, that would take care of Ned's fears or some of Ned's fears. Um, I wish Congress would do that tomorrow. I, and and I, I've had this conversation with Democrat leaders in Atlanta, actually, and um, they won't do it because, but they should. Yeah. So as you can probably guess, my answer is absolutely not. And I predict <laughs> that this will never happen. So we don't need to worry about it because they're not going to get to two thirds. Uh, I, if it were to be done, and it's a completely hypothetical, at the very least, there should be a condition attached to it. And the condition would be something like that Trump does reparation for all the evil that he does, uh, and that he promises never to hold public office again on his own, uh, and that he admits that he lost the 2020 election and so forth. It may be that such conditions would be legally unenforceable, but if so, that's all the more reason why the disqualification shouldn't be lifted in the first place. So after the second impeachment, there was a debate and some pressure on um, Senator McConnell um, to move legislation of, of this sort. Was that a mistake by McConnell? To, to not move it? No, to move it, to move legislation that would, um, uh, to take action and vote um, to, to move uh, Trump off the ballot, disqualify him. 
You mean like pass implementing legislation for section? I haven't thought about that much before. It might have been a good thing to do because it would have removed the objection that you need implementing legislation. Uh, but I think that's probably not one of the stronger arguments that the opponents have. But I think on balance, that would have been a good thing to do. What would have been a better thing for McConnell to do uh, is, to, is to vote to convict at the impeachment and disqualify Trump <laughs> on that basis. I recognize that my former student, Josh Blackman and Seth Tillman, would still object on the, uh, the, the basis of that. They have that same officer argument there that like the, the presidency is not really an office you've disqualified for. But uh, it's lame and ridiculous in that context. It's just as it is in, in this context, and therefore, I think that disqualification would probably have stuck. But uh, partisan senators, many of them were not willing to do that. Uh, uh, and you know, more generally, the impeachment process doesn't work well, at least for presidents, because of the partisanship uh, involved. Uh, and so we're left with these you know, other kinds of mechanisms. Right. Yes, please. I wanted to ask about violence as uh, a source of political outcomes. Um, I was rather chilled by the anecdote um, in, in the current story, uh, book about Mitt Romney of being told by other senators, I would have voted in the second impeachment against Trump, but for the personal safety of my spouse and children. And I wonder whether the threat of violence made so real to us on January 6th is something felt by all of the decision makers, whether they're state and local election officials, members of Congress, judges in state courts and federal courts um, who will be ruling on um, these Section 3 cases that are, that are coming before us. Um, certainly, historically, political science has focused on voters and elections. But have we come to a moment when uh, violence itself um, is an important part of that calculation. There's no doubt that violence ought to be studied more. I agree about that. There is some areas uh, where we've had some research, but I think certainly a lot more could be done. And, uh, you know, I think there's a, the, the, the issues about how to respond um, is kind of what we're talking about. The urgency and the threat um, are acute, quite serious. But, you know, if you listen to Eric's arguments, it leads you to the conclusion that this barring may actually accentuate, bring to a boil just the sort of thing that we're talking about. We've had arguments over here that you need to create the guardrails to contain. Um, my own view is that it needs to do, it, all of this needs to be done before the conflict. Because now that you're into a presidential election, to kind of pull the plug on the leading candidate, it, it, it is... Uh, you know, it's unfair or it's, it's you know, it, it, it adds to the, the dynamism and the threat of the current moment. That's my own view. That's yeah, one thing on a threat of violence, yes, I agree it should be taken seriously, but I think it strengthens the case for not giving into it. If people choose not to disqualify because they fear violence, uh, that is a success for the people who threaten the violence. Uh, and what you reward, you get more. You get more terrorism when you give in to terrorists. And here, you would get more threats of violence when you give in to those who threaten it. So if anything, this uh, other things equal, this strengthens the case for disqualification, for criminal conviction, and all the rest of it. I would note also that for the kinds of hardcore Trump supporters that may be likely to engage in violence, well, they did that even when, when, when Trump lost in the normal electoral 
electoral process in 2020. Uh, so uh, it's not obvious to me that, like, you know, Eric said the West has beat him politically. It's not obvious to me that that will be any better in terms of uh, this threat of violence. What would be better is if we send a strong message that we will not be deterred by the threat of violence and that those who engage in it will be severely punished uh, and not spared. Yeah, I want to just very briefly say, I think basically the same thing that, that Ilya is saying, and that we've been talking a lot about political legitimacy, and if our if ultimately the question turns on whether violence is going to be the repercussion for pursuing one legal avenue or another, then we're not talking about legitimacy anymore. We're talking about something else. I, I don't understand that. The key phrase I think you use was all things being equal. All things are not equal. We, we are at a point in American history of of the serious probability that there are really ugly times ahead. So I think when all is said and done, would disqualifying him give us smoother times ahead or rougher times ahead? And I think we can reasonably disagree about that. But it strikes me the question about violence has to be part of that equation on the ground in the real world. Yes, please. I came here to get, hopefully, to get some answers. And I must say, I'm more confused than ever. But <laughs> I think we've done our job. Question I have, the, con law, so. <laughs> the question I have is, assuming that Trump su survives all these challenges and that he's elected, what happens in 2028? Isn't that kind of the ultimate mm -hmm. test of our democracy of what's, what's going to happen going forward? I mean, if he's emboldened by all of this, will he leave office in 2028? <laughs> as he would must do under the 22nd Amendment? He, well, <laughs> no, <laughs> is the answer to that question. So, so, so I don't know if he would or not, uh, but the more you think, it's interesting actually, Eric has a more negative view even than I do of what would happen uh, if Trump were to get back into office. One would think that if your view is, is of that is so negative that it's even more negative than mine, which is pretty bad to begin with, uh, then uh, you know, in the normal electoral process, it seems like looking at survey data and like Trump would have like say a 40, 50% chance at least somewhere in that ballpark of winning. Uh, if section three disqualification, uh, if I'm right that there's a 50-50 chance of that working, then that reduces those odds from 50% to 25%. And this is speaking very crudely, but it's rough ballpark figures. Uh, the more negative you think is the likely outcome of Trump becoming president, the more you should want this additional mechanism, even if you believe that at the margin, it say it also increases the chance of winning electorally by another 5 or 10%. Still, it's hard to do this math in any way other than that uh, that if the more you think it would be a disaster to have Trump in office again, the more you should take every opportunity to prevent that. And this is an additional massive opportunity to do it. Trying to be really quick on the point of the House, because Eric said something that I hadn't heard before that intrigues me, which is the idea that if somehow Trump was disqualified, that would increase the chances that he could win the election through the House. No, I didn't say that. I'm sorry. No. Oh, okay. I, I was saying he's planning to create. I don't, I don't believe that. He is, I think, planning to create enough chaos, confusion, disruption, so that no one gets a, a, a majority of the actual votes, and, and then eventually it goes to the House. Well, okay. All right. Well, on that, uh, cause thanks for that clarification. I ha there is this possibility. The, only way, the two ways it could go to the House is, one, if there's a 269-269 tie that we've never seen before, that would go to the House with only the two candidates the House would be able to vote on. Um, if there is a third candidate, like the possible no labels candidate, you could get a three-way split in the electoral college. Um, we can 
think about whether that's likely or not. We've last seen that in 1824. But there is an intersection between that possibility and our issue today, which is hypothesized that the House of Representatives flips and is under Democratic Party majority control as of January 3rd, 2025, which is not unrealistic. And you have an undisputed situation where you have a three-way split, so you have to go to this House procedure. Now, many of you may know that the rule for the House procedure is one, uh, one vote for each state delegation in the House. But the House of Representatives as a body has rulemaking authority to establish the procedures for how that contingent election will be conducted. Is it secret ballot? Is it open vote? So on and so forth. Again, we're uncharted waters in terms of unconstitutional interpretation, but it's not implausible to think that the majority of the House of Representatives under Speaker Hakeem Jeffries could, in setting up the rules for the contingent election, disqualify one of the three candidates who won electoral votes for being disqualified under the 14th Amendment and therefore not eligible under the 20th Amendment and only send to the, the special contingent election procedure the other two candidates, namely Biden and the third no-labels no candidate. And that would not be vote of the two chambers to disqualify under the Electoral Count Reform Act. That would be a unilateral act by the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives to disqualify uh, Trump. That, to me, is also a fraught, dangerous scenario, but one that we can't ignore if we're contemplating the possibility of a contingent so let, let's hold, We're going to get one more question, and then you all can respond. Thank you, Ned Foley, for that intriguing scenario. <laughs> <laughs> um, one question for the general panel, one question for Professor Segal. Um, we haven't talked about the uh, what's going on within the Republican Party, uh, this MAGA conservative split, i.e. the fiasco of the last couple of weeks with Speaker McCarthy, non-Speaker Scalise, <laughs> Speaker Johnson. Um, since a lot of the panel has been kind of gazing into the crystal ball, uh, what do you make of sort of where the Republican Party is headed in the next couple elections? Uh, and then quickly for Professor Segal, um, as you know, we talked last night. I agree with pretty much everything you've written, but uh, I'm concerned that your position here on Section 3 amounts to we enforce the constitutional law unless the person in question is powerful enough that we're scared to enforce the constitutional law. Um, I think by that token, you know, uh, half the country doesn't believe that uh, Trump engaged in obstruction of justice either. So what about the criminal proceedings? He's not automatically excluded from office, but are you worried about him ending up in jail and the legitimacy kind of costs there? Okay, so I'm going to take the Republican Party one because I've been following this very closely. Um, I think that the the Democrats are very good at having a lot of different um, different pieces of their coalition and coexisting, Republicans are not. So over the next eight years or so, we're, we're going to see the, you know, one coalition or the other winning. Um, and I think it's, the numbers sort of suggest the MAGA coalition, but the electoral returns, as Ilya pointed out earlier, suggest um, something else, suggest that that's not a very electorally competitive component of the party. So I don't have a good answer, but I, that's sort of how I'm thinking about the the dynamics of it. And the, the only thing I want to say sort of in closing, since we have talked so much about legitimacy, is the politics of caution do not have a good track record. 
in the United States for improving legitimacy. They just have a track record of kicking these problems down, down the road. And I think if we look back to the 1860s for information about what goes on in the wake of an insurrection, we not only have some legal context for what we're talking about, we also have political context about what happens when you refuse to face the problem that part of the country doesn't want to be part of the United States for reasons that I think still inform some of our politics today. So that's my, my final take. So on a Republican Party thing, I, I mostly agree with what Julia said on Ned's uh, question. I think it's a great hypothetical, but it's one that I think we don't need to worry about much because I could be wrong, but I see almost no chance that any of these third party candidates will actually win any electoral votes, whether it's Cornell West or Bobby Kennedy Jr. or uh, the hypothetical no labels candidate if one actually emerges. Uh, they could have an effect in terms of tipping one state to Biden or into Trump, uh, but I think it's very unlikely to win any electoral votes and therefore this House of Representatives scenario wouldn't happen. Finally, on the general uh, point, I think, you know, I would just reiterate the theme that there have to be constraints on democracy in some cases to protect democracy itself and protect liberal values and disqualifying a person who tried to set himself up as a tin pot dictator by using force and fraud to stay in power after he lost an election, that's an easy case. There are more borderline kinds of cases for those kinds of arguments which come up both in our history and around the world, but this should be an easy case. You might still say it shouldn't be done for some kind of technical legal argument, but the presumption should be that if there is a plausible legal avenue for barring such a person from ever holding a position of important uh, power, uh, then uh, that path should be taken, uh, and it's the other side that has the burden of proof for showing that it should not be. Uh, and I think both American experience and that around the world uh, supports that position and also supports the view that there's a slippery slope pointed out with people like Hugo Chavez and others abroad that uh, if you don't punish this kind of behavior and don't disqualify and you say you know, this is a freebie uh, you can try if you lose an election uh, then we should expect uh, others to repeat uh, Trump's performance or do similar things. Um, Andrea, I, I think constitutional law is that the president has to be 35 and the Senate gets to each state gets two senators, and inauguration day is January 20th. I think what we're do, dealing with here is constitutional litigation, and that is a very, very different animal. Um, the last thing I want to say is, I, with, uh, one of my Uber drivers said this, um, Illy and I have been fighting with each other for about 20 years about the Boston Celtics. Um, he loves the Boston Celtics for reasons I can't understand. I detest the Boston Celtics and always have. The Uber driver said to me, because we end up segueing into the NBA, I don't want... Celtics players to be injured and my team to win because they're injured. I really don't. I mean, I want my team to win really badly, but I don't want them to win at the expense of injuring somebody else. Um, and the Uber driver said to me, two of them actually said to me, more or less, the American public will view this as taking a player off the field. I mean, the, the Trump base and, and others too. And I think the worst thing you can do <laughs> is take a player off the field unless two conditions exist. Most people agree and you know you can do it. I think we have a better chance of beating him at the polls than we do of the Supreme Court upholding a disqualification. Let's beat him at the polls. Great. Thank you very much to this terrific panel. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. 
You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was a talented staff of the University of Minnesota Law School. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.